The Speaking of Cults podcast is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from it is at the user's own risk. The views, information, or opinions expressed by the host and guests are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute medical or other professional advice. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Cults, uh, the new podcast titling for the same podcast I've been putting out for years uh, about cults, about coercive control, about trauma, and about cult recovery. We cover in this podcast stories of abuse, uh, and so this is a little bit of a trigger warning here for everybody listening at the beginning, that we are going to talk about stuff that's a little difficult to talk about and has some emotional, uh, you know, maybe baggage connected with it. And uh, and so that's uh, what we're doing here today. And I am joined by Emily Ragland, and she is someone who uh, is a has a master's degree. And let me I wrote this down to make sure I didn't get it wrong <laughs> in the youth, family and community sciences. Yep. Yep. Excellent. And she reached out to me because she is someone who, like me, is interested in educating the public at large about the subject of trauma, trauma recovery, and how this sort of thing happens to us. And she is herself a trauma survivor. So, Emily, welcome to my show. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah, it's be interesting. Now, you have, um, I guess maybe we should probably set up for the audience, maybe a little bit more of your background. Who are you? Yeah. Where are you from? And what was it that um, sort of uh, made you think, oh, yeah, Chris Shelton, that's a guy I should be talking to. <laughs> yeah, fair uh, question. Definitely yeah. a fair question. So what are so, we... Um, I'm originally actually from and born in Ohio, uh, but... I quickly moved to Haiti in the Caribbean with my family. I lived there from when I was five till I was about 10. Then we moved to Florida. We lived there and my family still lives there. So I went to college here in North Carolina in Greensboro, which is just about an hour and a half from our capital, Raleigh, Mm -hmm. and then went back home, was there for a while, and then have been here now eight years um and have a son and my husband we met in college and he didn't want to leave and I wanted to be with him so now I'm in North Carolina (laughs) and there you go (laughs) yeah that's how it works that Um, is the nomad life of the of the American citizen (laughs) there you go that part yeah so I um You know, I learned about trauma and now that I'm looking back more and more, I'm realizing I had far more traumatic experiences than I knew were traumatic experiences. Mm. Um, I kind of chopped them up to just life as a brown girl. Um, Mm. I'm raised by and adopted into a fully white family and it makes a very unique experience for me. Um, You know, I just was never around people of color until basically college when I was 17. So I just didn't really know that the life that my family was living would not be the same for me as someone of color. Oh, I get it. Let me let me ask you something, because something, I mean, yeah. in what you have said so far, I'm just not challenging. I'm just curious how this no. works. You, yeah. you went to, you know, obviously the picture that most people are gonna get just because of racial biases, is you say, you know, you were uh, went to Haiti from the year from five to 10 years old. 
you know, certainly I assumed black family going back to Haiti or something like that. Right. I mean, right. Duh. And now right. not that. And I have to. So 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 kind of a cloistered experience there in Haiti. Kind of like a mission, if you will. I mean, my family and I are not religious, okay. but we went to a hospital that was founded by Albert uh, Schweitzer. Mm. And he was big in hospital administration and a hospital building in particularly third world countries. So my father was a hospital administrator. My mom has been a fundraiser most of her career, as well as a social worker. So they took my sister and me and we went to Haiti. And it was interesting because in Haiti, I was clearly not Haitian. Mm -hmm. And they used to call me what they say, Blanc Rouge, which in Creole, which is the language of Haiti, mm -hmm. means white red. So my sister and I, because mm -hmm. she's also a person of color, adopted from a different family of color. Mm -hmm. um, and we were Blanc Rouge, where we were clearly not the white people, but also not Haitian. Right. And then I moved from there to the United States and I immediately was black. That right. was, there was no option but to be assigned. You are now a black person. Right. Um, and I was raised in a very upper class, very conservative uh, school part of the uh, state. It is a part of the world that I just don't relate to any longer. And I'm learning perhaps I never did. I think I just played the part and, mm. you know, enjoyed the benefits of it, but then learned later how really traumatic it was not being around anyone else that looked like me, never having a teacher that wasn't white, never being around a leader who wasn't white, just never being around anybody successful that was not a white person. I get that. I totally get that. How interesting. And, um, and, and again, um, awesome because I love having my biases and my stereotypes broken apart. Right. So it's kind of awesome story. And so thank you for sharing that. And, yeah. um, and I totally get the point because, oh my God, right. Talk about stranger yeah. in a strange land in a way. Yeah. Right? Um, because there is no one around you who looks like you and actually, yeah, that matters. So, yeah. you know, so let's talk about that. What, um, now when we talk about trauma and you're educated yeah. in this topic and you want to educate others in this topic as yeah. well, as do I. So how do you, when you say, you know, trauma and this kind of thing, I think some people might go, well, what are you talking about? It sounds like you had a great life. Absolutely. So what is the problem here? How do you see yeah. it as a, as an issue? Yeah, great catch, great point. So I have explained to people that trauma, unlike what we often think it is, it's not a singular event. It's not just an assault or a car accident or a house fire, perhaps. It can be ongoing issues as well as the lack of something. So for me, it was the lack of relatability. It was the lack of seeing people that looked like me who were successful or who weren't successful. I mean, just anybody so that I knew that my life may not be the same as what I've been raised to expect. Mm. And there were many cases where I was hit directly in the face, if you will, with the realization that I was not them, them being my friends, my family, my brothers, my extended family. I was not there. And so I lived a lot of moments that made me have to sort of stop and realize, oh, right. 
I'm brown. I'm not going to pass, if you will, in these conversations. I will be the one who, if I'm with my friends, was people were walking behind me so I didn't steal things. Or the cops have been called on me before because the assumption is that I'm brown and I'm in a nice place and I shouldn't be there. And that happened in my childhood to a point where it didn't even, I didn't realize it was trauma mm. until I learned what trauma was and how we present those symptoms. And for me, I just ignored it and just sort of chopped it up to life as Emily. And as I learned more and more that these were microaggressions or straight up racist aggressions, mm -hmm. and I became more cognizant that I had experienced far more trauma than I knew because I had not only not been informed about what trauma was, but I also just got used to it, if you will. It mm. just was part of life for me. And I just would be caught off guard and then laugh it off and keep it moving. Right. Right. And not an unhealthy response. Yeah. In terms of that. Right. Yeah. Uh, certainly. And it's better typical. Than... I mean, yeah. we all, right. You know, there, let's just say there are more negative trauma responses. For sure. For sure. <laughs> right. In terms of quality of life issues and things like yeah. that. Um, well, so let's go ahead and define this for people who might be thinking, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? Because uh, I thought it had to involve something like injury or, you know, somebody assaulting you or, you know, you had to be in a war or you had to be imprisoned or, yeah. you know, and, and sure enough, I mean, everything those are all certainly traumatizing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, um, uh, but these things are unique. They are individual person to person. We all have that it different responses to things, right? Yeah. So how does this, um, it, it just like kind of through maybe a couple specific examples like you've given, yeah. right? I couldn't, I mean, it's not a microaggression when somebody's calling the police on you. That is right. clearly, you know, racist, race-based, uh, you know, like othering, right? You know, it's right. like, well, I can't trust you simply because of how you look. Absolutely. Um, I know if somebody did that to me, I'd be furious. I'd be yeah. absolutely furious, right? Yeah. And I got used to, I mean, it happened multiple times enough that it was like, come on. And I would say, call my dad. He, you know, he's the guy you need to talk to. And they knew him. He was kind of a big deal in our area. So, you know, it was like, oh, you're, you're his daughter. Okay. Oh. Um, right. Exactly. Like, oh, our bad. It's like, yeah, no big deal that you surrounded me with four cop cars at 11 o'clock at night while I'm with my friends. Right. Um, so yeah, trauma can be all of those things you listed, yep. but they can also be, and the challenge with trauma is, like you mentioned, is very individual. I can't tell you what is trauma to you, and mm -hmm. you don't get to tell me what was traumatic to me. And that makes the conversation increasingly challenging, because I get a lot of people who say, well, I lived through X, Y, and Z, and I didn't have a problem, mm -hmm. or we were in the same family, and I didn't handle it the way they did. But that is totally up to the individual, their mental health, the way they were raised, how they identify. All of those things have variables that in, really matter in the conversation of trauma. Yeah, And it's exactly. tough because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about trauma. We talk about, you know, maybe if we're lucky, mental health, but even that conversation is minimal. So... I think it's important that people know that trauma can be any experience 
any situation, any event or lack of events. So like neglect is trauma um, where it impacts you almost forever and always. It impacts your mental health, your feeling of security, your feeling of safety. Um, and trauma is very much related to all of those things. And if you have experienced trauma, often the process to fight and work through it may come up in ways that you're not prepared for because it will inevitably make you deal with it one way or another. And oftentimes, because we don't know anything about trauma, we're not ready for it. It just slaps you in the face and now you have to figure out what this is and what to do with it. Exactly. And in fact, I thought it might help if we clarified, um, I, I pulled up this definition. You can tell me Perfect. what you think of this. Yeah. Um, because this is just one of many that, you know, you can Google, you can check this Absolutely. out. Absolutely. But there's, there's a key point about this, right? Which is trauma is an emotional response to an intense event that threatens or causes harm. The key there is it's an emotional response. It's something that's generated within you. It's not the event right. within you. It's Correct. How you're responding to an event, how you're reacting to an event. And it's often the result of an overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds yep. one's ability to cope with or accept the emotions involved with that experience. And uh, yeah. right. Cause that's the, that's the point. It's, it's our reaction to it. Well, guess what? We all react things differently. What you find yeah. funny. I might not find funny. So Absolutely. if you were to stigmatize somebody or um, other them, let's yeah. say, right because they had a different sense of humor than you did, that would be crazy. That'd yeah. be absolutely nuts. Nobody would, you know, it'd be like, what? You know, you didn't laugh at my joke, so get the hell out of my life and never return, right? Like that would be, that would be a crazy response. And yet, right. if somebody responds differently emotionally in a negative way to an event, yeah. and we don't, we will, like you were just describing, we'll tend to, well, what's, the, what's your problem? Yeah, absolutely. So just to clarify this, the exact thing we're talking about, it's yeah. this inner thing. And this is, I think, why emotional intelligence and understanding mm -hmm. some of the basics, at least, of the psychology of this can yeah. really, really help us identify and even make it, I hope, um, eventually, you know, if it, with enough understanding of this and enough kind of self-awareness, I think it's possible that we could gauge or monitor or observe our reactions in the moment and moderate that to some degree yes. if we have some power of choice in the matter right now obviously not when somebody's sitting there punching in the nose but you know to otherwise maybe less less you yeah. know physically destructive events what do you think about everything i'm just kind of soapboxing about there 100% accurate. And I think that it includes why the conversations maybe not had and if it is had that it is so murky. Yeah. is, you know, I think as a society, we like black and white, literally, like we like to know one or the other. We don't live in the gray area so well. And trauma is only the gray area. There is no black or white, because like you said, it's relative. It's all based on how I interpret it, how I feel about it, which is why people may say, like, it's not that big of a deal. All I did was blah, blah, blah. But for you, it like broke a part of your soul. And when you speak up, people often don't see that it is different to each human. So 
you don't get to tell me it wasn't traumatic. I don't get to tell you it wasn't traumatic. And I think our desire to tell people how they should feel makes the conversation of trauma even more challenging because we want to say, come on, we had it worse. At least you weren't attacked by a fire hose when you were, you know, in the seventies and, and had dogs biting your ankles. Absolutely. That sounds horrific, but I still have microaggressions, literal, actual aggressions. And so to your point, I think also we get sort of stuck in this trauma comparing. Right. Right. And I often tell people just like they say, comparing is the, what is it? The robs you of happiness. Right. That's the same with trauma is I don't, if I sit there and say, oh my gosh, Chris had it so much worse than me. I should be grateful that I wasn't in the situation he was in. So, you know, at least I blah, blah, blah. Luckily I da, da, da. And that's where I find that conversation of you should be grateful to be detrimental in some cases, Mm. because I'm all for being grateful that I have what I have, but I don't think it should negate how hard it was to get where I am in order to get those things. That's right. And so when we talk about trauma, I tell people often we can enjoy what we have and still also acknowledge how hard it was to get where we were. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a, I, I wonder if that isn't springing out of, you know, how we sort of try to deal with it within ourselves, you know, and, and, and then we vocalize it and then it becomes a kind of trauma Olympics or oppression Olympics, right? right? Of mine is better than yours or mine is greater than yours or something. And objectively speaking, fine, you know, sure. You can look at somebody who is a concentration camp survivor or an RPF survivor or a, you know, Guantanamo Bay survivor and go, holy shit, this person went through some shit, right? Yes. But, but in what way does that, does that person's experience in, 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 in what universe does that experience in any way negate or lessen your experience in your own life, right? It shouldn't. 100%. These are two different things, and we can look at yeah. them, you know, separately. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, sorry, my voice cracking here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to use that edit button. Right. Uh, <laughs> but certainly, um, you know, from a therapeutic point of view or from a therapy point of view, right? This is very, very. This is a very, very important view to have. Yeah. Now, I'm curious uh, just to go to the other end of the conversation, right? Yeah. Because um, because we're we're heavily acknowledging that the the relativity of this, the individualness of this, right? At, there also seems to be a point just to have this part of the conversation where I yeah. have observed, um, and certainly as a child, I did this, you know, overusing or knowing yes. using a traumatic episode or, uh, you know, something that maybe actually didn't hurt you as much as you might now say it does. And we get that end of it too, which can, in a way it's perfectly organic and natural for kids and stuff like that to do that. But when it gets to adults doing that, I think we are doing a real disservice to trauma survivors. Yes. (laughs) You know, by exaggerating it too. And you get that sort of I, I hate this word, but I, I don't know what word right now in the moment to use. You get that vibe of yeah. person, right? Yeah. How does that factor into your, uh, you know, sort of interpretation or perception of how trauma exists in our society and how we and how we're dealing with it? 
Yeah, I think it's similar to when I hear people say, you know, oh, she's crazy and they're not they're not mentally ill or, right. oh, she's so depressed and she's not necessarily depressed. She might be sad. She might be tired. But I think that misunderstanding of the word can really take away from those who do live through what that actually is. And like you've shared, it's not necessarily to say, you know, oh, I, only we get to use that word because you didn't actually survive through anything. Right. But I do think that there's a connotation involved where we could easily say everybody had hard times. Was it a trauma? Meh, some of it might be. Some of it might not be. Mm -hmm. Is it something that now that you look back 20 years later, it still hits your heart? Or is it something that in the moment was challenging, scary, overwhelming, stressful. And then, you know, you got over it and you didn't have to go to therapy for it for 20 years. So I think that's where the difference is as well, is we have to be able to acknowledge things can be hard, but that doesn't always mean that that experience was a trauma. And I think that it's quick for people to have that slide all of a sudden where everything's a trauma. Right. And that's not necessarily the case. So being trauma aware and being trauma informed allows us to tell people, we see that you're struggling through something and we want to meet you where you are without judgment, without preconception. Yeah. And you get to tell us what has happened and how it made you feel versus us coming in and saying, you experienced X, Y, and Z. You now have X, Y, and Z. Your diagnosis is A, B, and C. And so I get to tell you what you need to do now. Right. And I think that's where the power gets taken away from many of us as survivors is we don't have the clinical knowledge to say, uh, no, I don't want to go through it in that direction. Or I, I don't want to expose myself that way yet. Right. And to find other options to recover can be really tough because- Therapy requires you to confront some things that maybe you weren't ready for or you didn't know about. And ideally, you're with a therapist who will help you go through that journey safely. That's right. But there are many therapists out there who push too fast or who aren't trauma informed. And it's very easy to trigger someone into something that could be far worse than when they got to a therapist. And I've had experiences with that as well. And it's it's horrifying because you trust in a professional. And when they mistreat you and mistreat that trust, it makes you have nowhere else to go. Yeah, it gets it is definitely rough um, because it puts you into the therapist shopping. You know? Yeah, which is miserable. Like, oh, I hated that. I hated that. Oh, right, Trying to find yes. the right person you can connect with who's Gonna right. Teach right and all that because there's so and and you know and to be fair of course you know there's there you know people are trying their best but sometimes there's just not matching up you know there's yes. personality clashes there's this there's that there's just everything you run into with people you know but but there are yes. bad therapists out there there are there are there are they will violate their ethical boundaries. They will buy, they will violate treatment modality methodologies, yeah. right? They'll spin their own shit. They'll do their own stuff. They'll enter other arbitrary ideas like religion into the session. Yes. You know, your problem is you just haven't accepted Jesus yet. I really wish that was not as big of a problem as it was, guys, but it yeah. is a huge problem. So, 
those kind of things have you know, exist and we got to and we have to acknowledge that because when you're a trauma survivor looking for help and you run into that it ain't help no you know it's no. just judgment and that's not yeah. that's not what anybody wanted so, right um okay so let me ask you about this now in terms of trauma because yeah. there's another thing that occurs to me which is i think a an easy way for people to misunderstand the experience when they observe it in others when somebody else has had a traumatic experience or is carrying that around with them there will be an awful lot of, at least in my experience as a cult member for years, decades, in fact, there was just active suppression mm. of all the trauma, right? You just bury that shit. You just bury it and bury it, right? Because you're not allowed to experience. You're not even allowed to call it what it is. Right. Uh, we see this also in survivors of traumatic episodes, whether one-off or complex uh, episodes. Yeah. Of this. They just want to suppress it, throw it in the closet, shut the door, never think about it again kind of thing. Yeah. And then one day. Yep. Right. It all comes out or it starts, you know, something yep. triggers and boom. Yeah. Everybody's going, what the hell happened to Bob? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to speak about that suppression release factor of this? Yeah. Because that absolutely can, that can be that's a great. Yeah, that's a great point. And and I think much of my own experience speaks to it as well is my family was just not one that talked about emotions very often. We were more of a shit or get off the pot kind of family. So if you were going to have a concern, what are you doing about it? If you're not able to do anything about it, I don't want to hear it because what am I supposed to be doing about it? Right. So because of that, I often didn't understand the emotions that were trying to communicate to me. Hey, we're not okay. Hey, we don't feel safe. Instead, I would just say, just part of being Emily and off we go. And so when we suppress it to the point that many of us do, whether it's because people don't open up space to have the conversation, we don't have the words to have the conversation. We didn't even know it was a conversation. <laughs> we often will struggle, but knowingly ignore the struggle. So it may pop up and we say, eh, not yet. We're not ready. We're not ready. Or, I don't have time to deal with this. Mm -hmm. I don't have time. I'm a parent or a caregiver or I'm in school and I don't have time to open up this can of worms because I have life to live and things to do. And so sometimes we suppress it on purpose because we don't have the bandwidth, the time, the ability to address it. And sometimes we suppress it because the social norms expect that we suppress. Correct. That's just how things are is yeah. When we say things like man up or, you know, men don't cry or we make fun of people who cry, who identify as male, that gets to that really icky point of, well, and how am I supposed to release this energy and this sadness or anger or hurt and not hold it in with my chest out until all of a sudden something small happens and I lose my mind and now I quote overreacted. And so when we suppress, I tell people a lot of times, it's not that it goes away, it's just that we're ignoring it and it will bubble up one way or another. It's going to appear. And many people might be able to be fortunate enough to say, now I'm ready. But oftentimes many of us don't even know it's bubbling to the extent that it's been bubbling. And now all of a sudden the top pops, the volcano's there, and all the feelings come out. And again, normally not in a place where it makes any sense. 
Right. So it's not in a place where it's like, oh, I'm in therapy. This is why it's happening. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm in a restaurant and someone smells like that one person. And all of a sudden I can't be in public for 20 weeks because everything makes me think of that event. Right. And that's where it gets really challenging is the suppression. So I often tell people we need to start talking about emotions with everyone at the youngest of ages, whether they're male, female, non-binary, whoever it is, it's not about gender. It's not about orientation. It's not about sex or any of that. It's the part of being human. And if we ignore it, the humanness of what we are will confront us one day or the other. And if we talk to people about feelings and give them space to learn how to express the feelings, then we don't hopefully have those moments where, oops, all of a sudden I'm in the grocery store bawling and someone has to come pick me up because, you know, that one guy looked like that one person from that one place. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild how it will. It will do that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not like, um, it's funny, we... we <laughs> It's just funny how we play the whole free will thing. And we do. And fine. We have responsibility. We have choices, all of that. But I'll tell right. you, man, your emotional responses, you can just forget it. That That is not under your control. It's, no. You know, they come up. And when they yeah. do, you got to deal with them. And you can deal with them in a healthy way or you can deal with them in an unhealthy way. And I, and I just don't know another way to, to say that, you know, in terms of uh, emotional intelligence, you, you just yeah. have an awareness of this. Absolutely. So um, because this is so tied in with, emo you know, with trauma and all of that, yeah. we've been talking in general terms about the phenomena of it and, and how people experience it and how they suppress it. Now you have a story. I do. And I would like maybe that we get into that phase yeah. of our talk now. What, what's, what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So my story starts in college. Um, I went to school here in North Carolina at a Quaker college. I oh, know boy. nothing of Quakers then. I know very little about Quakers now. It just happened to be founded by Quakers. And what they stand for is typically justice, equity, uh, inclusion, having very equal voices. And that spoke to me a lot because I had not been at the table, if you will, in any part of my life until then. Mm. And so decisions had been made for me. I was an athlete. Decisions were made for me. I was, of course, a child to two parents. Decisions were made for me. Sure. I worked. Decisions were made for me. I was a class president. I made decisions, quote, but ultimately decisions were made for me. And so I had never really been in a place where I could make my own choices and actually learn what that feels like. And so the opportunity to be in a physically small as well as very low number college, I think it was like 1300 for the full college. Wow. Um, yeah. Like my graduating class, I think was like 400 something. My high school graduating class was 53. <laughs> So I've always been in very small, intimate spaces, which has made this for me more challenging because it also means I'm always being watched. It felt like I was hmm. the brown person. Uh, sure. And in my childhood, 
it didn't just feel that way. I was literally in living experiences where people would be like, well, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Or Emily, what do they do in this situation? And it was like, not only am I not speaking for everyone, but I don't even live what I would say is a typical person of color life because I'm living with all white people. Right. So it was just one of those moments where I felt like I wanted to be in a space where there were people of color. I wanted to be in a small school because my schools had always been teeny tiny. And I wanted to be somewhere where I could sit at the table and be heard and seen and valued. So I also wanted to be an African-American studies major. And not surprisingly, in the South, there's like two options. So I'm sure that's not much more now than then, sadly enough. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. No, we're not, <laughs> no, we're not talking ancient history here, folks. Right, exactly. <laughs> Your degree was so, in 2020, right? So my undergrad degree Your undergrad was degree. in, I graduated in 2007. Oh, okay. So we're going back to that. Okay, got yeah. it. Thank you for clarifying that because I wasn't sure about the sequence of things there. Yeah, thank cool, you. Cool, cool. Yeah, still yeah, not so ancient history. Undergrad. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So I had two options because I don't like the cold. I didn't want to be too far from my family. So I was like, Virginia is the most north I wanted to go. There were two colleges that offered African-American studies. So I picked one of them being this one. Um, And I wanted to play softball because I had played softball and travel ball um, for most of my high school and middle school career. So I was going to play softball. I was going to major in African-American studies. And I was going to be a person for the first time who had some choices and decisions to be able to make. Yep. Which so is, I went to college. Which is, a, which is a, I think, how a lot of people would characterize going to for college, sure. right? Yes. Fair enough, yes. right? But points taken on, you know, you were having a rather unique experience Yeah. That's undeniable. Uh, Yeah. 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 And I think that's, and that's what makes this increasingly difficult, difficult sometimes to explain is like you just said, there's just so many layers and variables. Exactly. So, you know, everybody goes to college a little excited, a little nervous, a little ready to like make bad decisions and learn through those things. And, and so I think there was for sure that same excitement for me of like, I'm finally away from my family, but not too far. And I finally get to like learn things, but I still have the comfort of like playing ball, which has always been very safe and very much like my home space. And so I get to college a little bit early because they had like pre-orientation where like freshmen could get there and like learn where their classes are and meet some people. So I did that. And then in 2000, this is in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, So I did that and then school started. I was on the softball team. I was registered for classes. I was ready to get going. I went to a Halloween party and it changed the rest of the trajectory of my life from there out. Um, It was, you know, a typical college party. Mm -hmm. It was October and despite it being chilly, I'm sure we all wore, you know, as little as you could. You wanted to look cute or some people wanted to look funny. My college was crazy liberal. So there were a lot of people who were just flat out naked. Like it just happened all the time. You just saw naked people all the time. Wow. And so that was not what I expected you to say. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It was whoa, what? All the time. Very hippie, 
there was times in Christmas, I think it was, where they would have like a run through all of the libraries and everyone was naked. Like it was just part of the vibe there. Okay. And with that, I felt like it also presented itself to be particularly safe because if you're walking around naked, clearly you feel safe to do so. I mean, And yeah. so I thought, great, this is a place, again, where they're advertising that we are going to watch out for each other. We've got your back. You've got ours. You know, all those things. Right. So I went to the college party in the apartment. Um and they were serving what's called or was called jungle juice, which was whatever you could get a hold of that was alcoholic. You pour into a bathtub with maybe some juice and everybody would just sort of scoop it up and be about their business. Yep. And Typ someone that gave me pretty a typical cup. college. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like whoever has the ID, you get what you can and pour it in and share with everyone. Yep. So I got a, a cup from someone who I had seen, but didn't necessarily know. We were both freshmen. Mm. Um, he handed me the cup. I had seen other people take a cup as well. And so I didn't even think twice about it. And then I think that was probably maybe midnight or so on Halloween. And I woke up the next day in his room naked at 10 o'clock in the morning. Wow, passed out for what's that? Uh, 10 and a half, 11 hours. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I'm yeah. sort of guessing the worst happened? Yes. Okay. So I wake up naked. I had been a virgin. I very much had, had sort of protected that. I have zero judgment for anyone who is sexually active. If you're safe and it's consensual, I'm all for everyone making their own decisions. But I had decided to just hold off until I felt like it was someone I cared for. Mm -hmm. And so I woke up. And it felt odd that I would be in a room with a stranger naked with a naked person next to me in a room I'd never been in at a school. I just as, have been in for like a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And so initially I thought, well, you know, like you, do, I woke up and it was just like, what just happened? Like mm -hmm. I have zero recollection. The last thing I remember was moments where i could recall being basically dragged across campus by this person mm. and he is physically smaller than me so clearly i also realized like i probably was drugged something didn't seem right i only had that one cup of drink i hadn't drank a lot in high school but enough that i knew that like one cup shouldn't probably knock me on my butt like it did mm -hmm. and so i woke up he was still there from what I can remember. And the challenge for me is I, there's huge parts I don't recall and, and may never remember for those mm -hmm. 10 hours. Sure. There are portions that I have slowly started to remember. And it has felt like an out-of-body experience, which I later learn is what is it when you you remove yourself basically from what's happening? Yeah, disassociation. Um, disassociation. disassociation. Yes. Yeah. So I later learned I disassociated. And I remember watching myself being raped for who knows how. Right. So I wake up, I collect all my clothes in a total confusing mess of like, what the fuck just happened? Yep. He's there. He's not really saying anything or telling me anything either, of course. His mm -hmm. roommate's there. There's people there. So 
I, oh. yep. Yep. So I get up and leave mm -hmm. and walk my way back to my dorm and do what you do, which I now know you shouldn't do. You shower, you scrub, you get all the ick off of you. I washed my clothes and I just went about my life. I had no clue what had happened. I thought maybe he liked me. Maybe this is like a thing. Maybe he and I are going to be something. And I later went to class and remembered slash realized he was in two of my classes. And so in that time frame, over the next couple days, week or so, we're in class together. He's asking me to sit next to him. He's talking to me. So I'm thinking it's not typical of me that I would have done this, but maybe this is something so okay maybe this is like a guy i'm interested in and he's interested in me so we exchange numbers we're talking and texting a little bit this is 2003 so you know you talk after nine and text minimally um but we're communicating we see each other on campus in class etc and then one day i get a knock on the door and it's his roommate and I was like, mm, what's going on, Andrew? And I knew of him. He was a rugby player. The rugby guys were always fun. They always were the life of the party. So I knew of him. And he was like, I need to tell you something. You need to sit down. And I was like, oh, God, what happened? And he's like, um, you need to call the cops. You probably need to go to the doctor. You were raped. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, I was there and many of us were there and you were screaming no and you were trying to fight him off and you were raped all night and you need to probably call the cops and you need to go get checked because I don't know if he has any diseases or anything or if he even used a con, like, I don't, I don't know. So you need to go to the hospital. Oh my and God. immediately, I just, I had no words. Like, not only am I finding out I was assaulted, but I'm finding out that this person and others just let it happen. Right? For 10 hours. Like, how is it that this guy's just standing there this whole time and now comes and tells you days a week later? What, what the, what? Yes. So I mean, thanks. I, what the fuck? Exactly. Right? It was like, how is this help? Like, I almost prefer you have not told me so that I didn't have to really address this. Right. And now here I am not only addressing the fact that I've been raped and drugged because he was like, yeah, he slipped something. He told me he slipped something in your drink. Uh, I know for a fact you were you were drugged. And I was like. How is this helpful to show up now when you right. could have shown up and pulled him off of me or called the cops then? Now it's been a week. I've washed my body dozens of times. I've cleaned the clothes. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Mm. And I had never even heard of rape until I got raped. Like, I didn't even know people did that to each other. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, wow. So 
I didn't know sex could be non-consensual. I had never heard of it. I always just thought you, two people have sex. Whoa. Two people have sex and they make that decision and they do so. Right. I had never even known that people would force each other or force themselves on other people. Wow. So, unfortunately, so then, I'm sorry. So, so, so am I, so am I right then that your parents never had a conversation with you about the concept of consent or no. any of that? None of it. Wow. Or I don't think I even had a conversation about sex. I remember being given a book and I remember bringing the book to school and not knowing that it was like something you don't bring to school. And I got in trouble and went to the principal's office and I got suspended. And I didn't know that you don't do that because it was brought to me so nonchalantly that it was just like, here's a book, read about your body. And that was it. Okay. So wow. I didn't have sex ed because I went to a Christian school where God forbid we talk about sex because abstinence is the best answer. Mm. I'm saying that sarcastically. Um, yeah, yeah. So I literally, I just had no understanding of any of this. Oh and my so God. here I am, 17, yeah. yeah, in my dorm, learning that I'd been raped, learning that rape exists, learning people drug each other. I didn't know that was a thing either. And now I have to go to the hospital and call the cops. Right. So I was a freshman. I didn't have a car. I had to find someone with a car because that was, of course, before, you know, Uber and all those. I had to find someone with a car to take me to the hospital. I went to the emergency room. They dropped me off by myself. I went into the emergency room by myself, sat there for hours until I was finally seen to be told, well, it's too late to do a rape kit. Mm. If anything, we could maybe know you had sex, but we couldn't confirm anything other than that. Right. So then comes, well, what do you want us to do? We can have the cops come, we can have an advocate come, and we'll take it from there. And I was like, okay, if that's what you do, then that's what we'll do. And so the cops came, there were two males. The first things they asked me were, where were you? And I told them I was at college on a campus for school drinking. And they said, why were you drinking? You're underage. I could press charges for you underage drinking. Um, what are you wearing? Why did you take a drink from a stranger? It's college. Everyone is a stranger. And why did you wait so long to say anything about it? Mm. All are the worst things you can ask a survivor of an assault. Yeah. And all are things one would hope that cops particularly are educated in knowing better to not ask. Apparently not in uh, Virginia. No. So Plus, I'm sitting there being asked all these horrible accusatory questions. Yep. They basically are like, it's your word against his. And I was like, no, it's not. I know someone you can ask who will tell you what happened. He's the one who told me what happened. And that's why I'm here. I didn't even know what had happened. Yep. And so they say they'll go talk to this person. What's his name? I give him his name. And they're off to go do that. And then the advocate's supposed to come. And, you know, advocates come for people who have been sexually assaulted, children who perhaps have been mistreated or abused. 
They never come. No one ever comes. So I just frantically get dressed and done and call my ride and go back to school. And in the midst of this, at some point, I had called my parents who immediately got in the car and drove from Florida to North Carolina. So they were there like the next day. Wow. And I just remember them having to pick me up and put me in their rental car because I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. And I sat in their hotel room in a ball for like three days. Now, meanwhile, I'm missing classes because classes have started. So my parents were communicating with the school about classes and, you know, what my options would be, you know, if I'm able to return, if I felt safe or not, if I didn't, what are my choices? How do I transfer if I wanted to transfer? Just what are what are the choices here? Yeah. And the school basically was like, well, it's his word against her. So like, we can't, we're not gonna do anything about it. Like she has classes. She can go to her classes. So I go to my classes. Wow. And I actually, I refused to go to my classes initially because he's in my class. So I'm telling my parents and they're talking to the school and they're like, well, we're not going to send her to class when the man who assaulted her is in two of her classes. Mm Mm-hmm. So you need to come up with a solution for that. And the school solution was to make me drop my classes. Of course. So forbid we should inconvenience him in any way. That part. (sighs) So I was either allowed to leave or I could basically not go to class, but continue learning on my own. And meeting with the professors individually, if and when they were able slash willing to do so. Right. So I did that. I stopped going to two of my classes. I had to schedule times with my professors to meet. I had to learn all the content on my own. I had to do all these things so that I could get the credits for the classes I was in. And not waste, I mean, also, I hadn't mentioned this yet, the school was like $34,000 a year. So for me not to waste 16 grand on the semester, basically, I had to do something. Right. So I maneuvered somehow and continued to learn. I quickly realized I couldn't play ball anymore because we traveled to different states and all over North Carolina. And when I was out of my safe space, I was having horrible panic attacks, horrible nightmares. So I had to quit softball, which really super sucked because that was one of the only groups of community I had between that and the people in my class who I also no longer got to see because I was no longer going to class. And so basically I sat in my dorm for the next three months by myself, going to the office to meet with these professors, doing my work as well as I could. And that was how it was handled. And then for the next three and a half years, I continued going and he continued 
being there as well. So this other person who had informed you did not step up to testify or submit an affidavit or something. So the cops asked him and he said, I made it all up and I was crazy. Oh, for crying out loud. That's disgusting. And at that point, it was my word against his right. word. And it was a wash. Yeah. And this person also was at the school for these next three years of my life. And I saw him on the regular. I saw both of them almost every week, at least a couple of times. Wow. So I spent the next several years being in college, but not really living the college life because, you know, there were a select few that I felt safe around. There were a select few places that I wanted to go. I didn't want to be in crowds. I didn't want to party around groups. And so it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. And completely unnecessary. The entire, all of it. Right. Which is, and it's so, it's been so hard over the last 20 years watching universities fumble their way through trying to figure out how to deal with this. Yes. You know, because it is such a difficult, complicated mess when it's he said, she said. And, you know, you want to believe victims, right? You want to believe Absolutely. survivors. And yet, you know, there's it's it, it, there's both sides of this thing, and it's just a yeah. mess. And and watching each campus screw around with this, right? And go yeah. too far one way, go too far in the other, just not sensibly dealing with this is really been frustrating. Uh, just from a from a distance, you know, from what I've been watching yeah. the last ten years. Yeah. Now. So. So you made it through this thing. This guy didn't obviously get prosecuted. There was no justice for you in this. Um, you know, it was traumatizing to finding out about the whole damn thing. So what ended up, um, what was your path following this? Yeah. So like we initially hit on, I went to therapy, my first therapist. I found one that was close because I didn't have a car. So I was like, let's find one that I can walk to. Sure. I went there. I explained what had happened and I find out he is religious and he tells me God only gives us as much as we can carry and that this was a lesson I was destined to have to learn this way. Oh my God. And that your, your rape was important for your own personal spiritual progress. Yeah. Wow. Like that's what I'm talking about. Like just, yep. just, just be quiet rather than say crap like that to a trauma. Yep. Wow. Yep. So I didn't go to therapy the first five years or so of my recovery. Yeah. You know, like you said, I mean, you get one bad taste, especially yeah. when you finally got the balls to address it. You finally are in a space where you can finally be vulnerable. You're finally ready to say, all right, this is probably going to bring up some shit, but I need to address it. And then when you're met with something like that, I'm not, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to handle any of this then if I can't even be respected when I come to a professional about the conversation. Exactly. exactly. And so I handled it in the worst other ways. I, well, not worse, bad ways. I uh, turned to drugs and, and would smoke pot regularly. I drank a good bit to ignore all of this and function, what I thought was functioning, get through it. And I got really promiscuous. And 
I'm finding, and this gave me relief, but I'm finding now over the last 10 years that those are all common ways that people handle an assault. I initially did not know any of that. So I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you be doing these things when you already can't trust people? Why are you opening yourself up to be taken advantage of? And so um, college happened. I, you know, survived it. I graduated with a 3.5. I, you know, got my bachelor's and my, um, I have a, master's in philosophy and a minor in african-american studies i only got a, a bachelor's in philosophy because the only professor on the campus that ever believed me was a professor of philosophy and she was my advisor and the only person that would give me leadway when i was struggling so if i was up all night panicking she was kind enough to say you can take your time and get me the assignments. And so it was really just that she made me feel safe. And so if I could take as many of her classes as I could, then I would. And so I became a philosophy major. Um, wow. But she, she advocated for me. She was the only one who would email people and she'd email professors until I graduated saying, I know that it may seem like Emily is trying to avoid something, but you need to know without me breaking her confidence, she needs extra time. She will do her part. She will respond appropriately. She will get things to you, but you will need to give her space and time on occasion to do so. And if it wasn't for her, I for sure wouldn't have graduated. Right. Right. That is so, the importance of advocacy folks. Yes. Right. Yes. This is a new term for you. You might want to go look it up. Yes. <laughs> it's an important concept. Uh, and and it's and everything Emily is saying here about this. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And I I thank her to this day. I tell her, you know, I, I speak of her on the podcast I've been on. I really not only do I think I, I, I wouldn't have graduated, I probably would have killed myself. Like there were many days where I thought. Anything would be better than this. I watched everybody else enjoy college. I watched everybody else go out and go to the clubs and go to the bars and date and do all these things. And I, I honestly, for most of the years, couldn't leave my room because I might see him or I might see the other guy or just being in groups would make me panic. Being around drunk people would make me vomit. Like I would physically get ill and I couldn't handle it. So most of those four years, I didn't do anything. I just would go from my room to my two best friends room and back. And that was it. Wow. So then after that, the first job I got, I worked at a domestic violence shelter um, I had worked with youth for much of my own childhood. I was always the YMCA camp counselor and, you know, all those things. So I ran the youth department for the um, domestic violence shelter for about a year and a half, two years. And it was invigorating to be an advocate for those who didn't have advocates. Yeah. It also was incredibly challenging to watch people not be able to get out of them their unsafe spaces right. um 
you know, I think domestic violence is one thing that we don't respectfully address. We assume people can just leave. Statistically, uh, it takes nine attempts for someone to leave. Yes. And even then they get often killed in the effort to do so. And their children get mistreated or go to the system. Right. So it was a really eye-opening moment for me to realize initially I had gone to school to be an attorney. That was my goal when I went to this school was to do this and then go to law school. And I quickly learned not only is the law a piece of shit and it basically means nothing because it doesn't actually help anybody in most cases, but that I had an opportunity to use my experiences to maybe be more of a advocate, um, a mediator, someone who could help others who didn't know how to use their voice or didn't ever get told they could use their voice or their voice looked or sounded different than the stereotypical voice. And so um, I spent most of my career actually working with individuals with autism, hmm. um, often who are mistreated also in ways that are just horrific. Um, I worked in group homes, I've run foster systems, I've run many of these opportunities where I was continually exposed to trauma, really. Yeah. And that's where I started learning trauma was a thing, was I did my first trauma-informed training as a group home director, and it was eye-opening. And it it felt like this, this is what makes sense to me we have to keep in mind what these people have lived through before we assume that they're just not trying or that they're just not interested or that they're quote bad kids. Yeah. And so I worked with people that were wards of the state who had no option, but to either be in that group home or prison, basically. Um, I've had ribs broken. I've had six concussions. I've had my car windows broken out. I've had my ankle broken. Wow, you've worked with some I, traumatized people. I, yeah. Yeah. I went back every time because I remembered how hard it was to not have anybody come back for you. And how easy it is for a lot of people to turn away from those challenges and to say, I just don't want to be a part of it. Or perhaps it... it triggers them, which is absolutely fair and respectful. But for me, it felt like I had an opportunity to be someone good to people who have not had much of that. And I wanted to build on that. And so I ran group homes and foster homes. I've worked in specialized schools with individuals with autism, all with aggressive behaviors. Um, and then in 2020, well, 2018, I uh, had been sitting thinking, what am I going to do next? Where am I? You know, I knew I wanted my master's or my doctorate or something more. And I just had fallen in love with the impact this has on family and our children. And... I didn't want to be a social worker. I know the turnover is crazy. I know that the, the second uh, level trauma is intense. The caregiver trauma is intense. You're going to get exposed to a lot of things that I felt like I know myself enough to know that if I have to see these things and I can't do anything about it, 
it would just be too much as a survivor, especially. Yeah. So I went back to school for youth, family, and community sciences, where I learned about how all these things overlap, how our engagement with each other impacts how our community shows up, how important community is, how important it is to have healthy family systems, safe and healthy boundaries, you know, have conversations I never had when I was younger. And, and so I also have a graduate degree or graduate certificate as a family coach and educator where I speak with parents on boundaries, how to create safe spaces for your children, how to educate them on emotions, and how to handle, you know, temper tantrums and, and aggression, really. Right. Because that's all, all that I tell people all the time, all that is, is communication. It's just not in an ideal way. Right. Um, right. So not to excuse aggression when people are older, but for children or for individuals with differences and developmental disabilities, that's often a result of a challenge of, I don't know how to say what I need, or I'm overwhelmed, I'm overstimulated. You know, I'm, I've not been taught how to use the right words to tell you. So I'm showing you how I feel. I'm sick to my stomach, but I don't know how to say it. So I'm punching things. So all of those things I learned throughout my career. And I felt like it was a time to be able to use it all as one thing to tell families and parents and, and systems that this is none of our worlds exist in a vacuum. None of our lives exist in a vacuum. And if it wasn't for all these systems at play, my experience would have probably gone very differently, as are most people's experiences. If we weren't so quick to target the survivor instead of support the survivor, then I would have a very different outcome. If, I, if the system wasn't so quick to say, what were you wearing? What did you do for this to happen to you? Then I probably had, would, have very, had, would have had a very different outcome. So I started seeing the macro and micro parts of this, that there's a system at play as well as social norms, as well as dynamics and families, as well as community trauma, as well as racial trauma. And so when I graduated, I started my own business where I um, offer training and professional development around trauma. And... Uh -huh. Most people don't necessarily get it, and it's not something I can live off of yet, but my goal is that when the world wakes up to the fact that trauma is very real, it's historical, many of us may not know that we live through trauma, but because just by nature of being black or brown or being othered, we live trauma because the world's not made for us. I think until we can acknowledge that systematically, that there's a micro and a macrocosm involved here, sure. trauma will continue to be what it is. And so I hope very deeply to help organizations, school systems, police stations, all of the places, especially when they see individuals that are uh, typically marginalized or youth, that we have to be trauma informed. We have to be trauma aware. We have to stop asking kids what's wrong with them and ask them what happened to you. What Instead of assuming this child's being bad, how about we say, what's going on at home? Why are they hiding under the desk? Who are they scared of? 
Right. Why is their head down? Did they not sleep last night? Because mom works two jobs and grandma had to take them from mom to the aunt's house. We don't ask any of those questions. We just say you're being bad. Go to the principal's office. You're suspended. That's right. So my goal is for the systems to just start to say we have not been there for others and we need to do better. And and what's that look like and how can we create frameworks for that to be uh, something that it evolves into? And there you go. And I, and I, I agree with you. I think that um, I think that so many of the troubles uh, that we run into with this come from a lack of understanding one another or even seeking to try because there's yes. it's faster, easier in the moment, easier. I'm using air quotes here, Absolutely. Um, yep. you know, to just suppress it. Right. Shut up. Sit down. Slap you down. I don't want to hear it right now. And, you know, uh, there's always two sides, all that bullshit. But at the end of the day, are we dealing with this effectively or not? Right. And no, we're not. Right. We're not. We could do better. Right. We can do better. Right. Yeah. That's and and I don't. And if, and if somebody is going to sit here and tell me, oh, no, no, it's all perfect right now, then I'm going to say, well, be very wrong. Yeah. Sorry, dude. That's not how it is. No. Right. These situations are very, very real. And, um, and, you know, when we talk about marginalized groups and stuff like that, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about groups yeah. who, who seem to, you know, who who kind of, um, well, there's just more trauma there, you know? Yeah. They were more potential for it to exist yeah. because of the conditions and situations that are there. And um, and there are, and, 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 and you're so right, right? Because there are systemic issues, there are individual issues. It's a multifaceted, as you've come to realize and learn through your studies, as I did through mine, that this yeah. is a complicated, multi-layered, multifaceted situation that requires a multidisciplinary approach. There isn't one group or one person or one group of knowledge that 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 totally gets all of this. It's a it's a, right. it's a number of things. Yeah. And it requires you know, caring, professional, knowledgeable people who who want to change this situation. And it's state by state. It's city by yep. city. It's county by county. I mean, the number of regulations on this, the number of programs on this, the social services available on this are so variable. Yeah. There's some mandate from the federal government of, okay, here's how everybody's going to deal with this. Right. It's the exact opposite of that. Yeah. So, So there's so many challenges here. Right. Yeah. And there's to your point, too, there's so many social norms that play into it. Just, oh, yeah. Just the mere fact of what it's what one should be doing or how you quote should act or what a boy or a male or a female or a should do. Those things play such a huge part in it, too. And I tell people often, you know, everybody is having a human experience and there's nothing unique about male versus female that is unable to say, you know what, you have your experience and that's tough. And I have my experience and that's also tough. So instead of us being angry about it to each other, what can we do to foster conversations, even if they're hard, especially because they're hard? I love hard conversations. I've been fired four times because I refuse to not have the hard conversation. And although most people in my life keep telling me shut up already and just do it and just get the money and go home as a survivor. When your voice has been taken, once you finally find it, you don't put it back. That's right. And so I even have it tattooed on my arm and it says, speak your truth. And 
It was from a therapist who was one of two therapists who I felt really saved my life. And he died randomly one day. And when he passed, he had given me a list of three things to always pay attention to. And the top of that list was speak your truth. And so I have it in his handwriting on my arm. I got it on the uh, anniversary of my assault on Halloween four years ago. And it gets me in trouble, but I also think and very much believe that it hopefully allows me to continue to help others find their voice, to help others feel safe, to create spaces where people can feel safe by going in there first, maybe because I'm more uh, healed, because I've recovered a little bit more and be able to say, People may not be ready yet to have all the conversations, but let's create the space at least to acknowledge there's a conversation to be had. Yep, there you go. It's always the first step. Right? Yeah, uh, because there's all because you're absolutely right. I I could not agree with you more about all of that. There's a lot of work we got to do out there, right? There's a lot of people who need uh, help, who need education, who need information about this stuff. And you know, this is the. Uh, by the way, you know, just uh, just in terms of moving towards, you know, ending our moving to the end phase of this uh, discussion today. Um, a lot of people might listen to this, and or some of you might be listening to this rather, and and thinking, well, you know, I thought this was speaking of cults. If you can't connect the dots between everything we're saying so far and cultic activity. Right? right. That's like all of this is speaking of cults yes. because everything we're talking about, literally everything, including, you know, what tragically happened to you, uh, the results of what happened to you, the, the, you know, and the, and what you carry from that. This is what happens in cults 24 7, 365. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah. I feel silly even having to say that. And maybe, you know, most of y'all out there aren't, aren't thinking that, but I just needed to put that out there because this is, this is, what we what we have been dealing with in cults all this time as well right and domestic For violence sure. cultic leadership you know group gang trafficking situations the thing that binds all of them the thing that is common about all of them is coercive control yep you know isolation manipulation and control it's what happened to you and it yeah. happened in an immediate it happened over a longer term you described it perfectly Right. And it's what happens to people in cults. And for those of you who think, well, you can just walk away. Okay. Just go quit your job right now. Go ahead. Go show me Boom. how easy it is to go walk away from a situation you are so invested in. You can't just walk away. No. Right. It's like, yeah. it's like that. Yeah. Right. So and to your point, you know, at the beginning you would ask, you know, what was it? Why did I reach out to you? Mm. Um, I find cults to be intriguing on a thousand levels. But as a survivor, I think there's a a beauty, honestly, in a survivor is that a survivor is a survivor is a survivor is a survivor. And I only say that as in there's such empathy in these conversations and there's that feeling of finally being seen that many of us didn't have for so long in our journey that when I hear about cults, when I hear about these conversations, it puts me kind of at ease because it makes you feel less that it's you're broken or you're dumb that you fell into this or you should have not taken a drink from a stranger. And instead, knowing 
statistically, it's like one out of three women are sexually assaulted in their life. One out of seven individuals identifying male are assaulted in their life. So statistically, it's happening. Yeah. So yeah. just like with cults, statistically, it's happening. And if we don't address it and we don't point at it and say, that's what this is here, then we'll never heal through it. And those of us who experience it will continue to shame ourselves. We'll continue to lose people to suicide, to overdoses, to risky behavior, because that's a very common thing for us is we get in cars with strangers because we don't respect ourselves because you didn't respect us. So who gives a shit anymore? That's right. That's and right. And so as I learned that as a survivor, I could give myself less personal responsibility for why and how I recovered. As I learned about neurology and the fact that our, our brain is set up a certain way and that this literally changed my brain chemistry. And now I had to retrain my brain to connect and communicate differently than it was during those systems. If I didn't learn those things, I would continue to tell myself, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have. And as I learn that we are animals, just like other animals, as it relates to fight, flight, fawn, freeze, I'm learning that you survive however it is you survive. Whether it is that you fight the person off or you just let it happen and hopefully it gets done faster, or you try to appease them and give them what they're asking so maybe they leave you the hell alone. Those are all survivor techniques. Those are what made it so humans get here and last as long as they have. Right. And so for me, when I learned that, it was like, oh, okay. This is literally in our DNA. So I'm not broken. I'm not crazy. I'm not all the things that people will tell you or that the social norms tell you. I'm not those things. I am just a human who's living a human experience, handling it in a humanistic way. And once I was able to really accept that, I could finally feel the recovery and the healing and the passing of all of that guilt and that shame that lives here in your throat and in your chest finally started to break up. Finally, I could take big breaths. And I want that for everyone who survives. And I want everyone who's surviving to know it's a bitch. And I'm sick of being told I'm strong. I tell people all the time, I, I'm sick of it. I would love to not be told, God, it's so impressive how strong you are. Because what that means to me often is, well, at least you've, you know, you've made it through all of that. And all I want to say is, I should have never had to live through that to begin with. Exactly. You should have never lived through what you lived through to begin with. That's right. So we have to, this is where being trauma aware and trauma informed shows up. Because if we ooh and awe at people's recovery and we go, oh my gosh, how impressive you were able to develop. What that does often for many of us is it just minimizes it. It makes you feel like you're a circus animal. It makes you feel like, oh, wow, look at you. Like, Oh, I'm so impressed you were able to get through it. Oh, exactly. So yeah, that can that there that can happen. That can happen. I don't I don't want to take away people's honest feelings of of you know of like recognition support. of absolutely of support, right? But at the same time, no, I I I definitely pick up what you're putting down. I've I've experienced some of that myself over the years. Yeah. So 
that's why I came to you and I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak. I'm glad we hit on trauma. I think if people are ready and willing to have those tough conversations, you're vulnerable every time you open up this, this conversation. And I think for many of us, when I see someone else get be vulnerable, I'm far more willing and able to meet them and also be vulnerable because it just automatically gives you that safe space. It automatically gives you a space to be authentic. And I think often the world just doesn't allow many of us to be our authentic selves. It tells us to calm down or be less than or be smaller than and, you know, be quiet and don't be angry black woman and all these things that have often come to my my especially my professional world where I wear natural hair, I have a septum piercing, I have tattoos. I address that in every interview I'm in because the first thing I tell people is if you don't want all of what you see, then I'm not the right person for you right. because I didn't fight through this for 20 years now. It was 20 years this past Halloween to not be myself. And if I was able to get through this and others are able to get through their trauma and show up at all on the other side, in whatever form that looks like, you shouldn't have to dull down because you've more than earned, if you will. And I don't like that word. You should have to earn your voice. You have a voice no matter what. But you've more than earned a place at the table and your voice and to be able to advocate for yourself. And I just think too often, too many people get told to just be less than and to put their light out. And as survivors, when people say that, it makes you think, what is it all for? Like, I could have just ended it 20 years ago and I wouldn't have to go through all of that. And so I just hope that everyone who's listening to this, who is a survivor, knows that they're doing enough, that every day that they wake up, don't judge yourself on what others tell you you should be doing. Don't feel like you have to heal the way others heal. That was the hardest part for me. I didn't know healing is not lateral. Mm -hmm. It is not straightforward. There's not a clear journey. It's all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> it's some days you feel like you're so much worse off than you were before you started going to therapy. Oh, yeah. And some days you leave thinking, hell yeah, I could take over the world. And so I just want everyone who survives anything, and most people out there have survived something, to remember that there is a chance for you to be at that table, whatever table it is, whenever you're ready, whenever your bandwidth allows, whenever the space is there, and not to rush it. Because if we rush it, we will just, like you started, we'll just be suppressing just as much as the other people next to us. Yeah. And then we'll just be worse off than we were that's right that's right well thank you yeah. so much for for that uh yeah. wonderful statement there in, in in wrapping this up today and i want to thank you for being open and uh transparent about your past and your experiences with this because it's that kind of thing that helps those out there listening right now to realize their situation and maybe step up i've had enough emails over enough years doing this yeah that, you know, and I'm sure you have too, right? Where, you know, when you when you feel seen and heard or represented in some fashion, right? Yeah. It it really matters. I didn't used to think it did. 
Same. You know, I really thought yeah. it was just some kind of like, you know, social thing, you know, oh, representation, yeah. right? And then you actually experience it, you know, and and I'm not just talking about minority thing. It's a human right. thing. It's a human thing, right? Yes. We need to feel seen. We need to feel heard. We need to feel like somebody cares. And, uh, and I hope that this show today has, you know, served to accomplish that help yeah. to inform, help to educate a little bit today on some of these basic principles. Um, yeah. So Emily, thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate the space. You bet. You bet. Thanks for reaching out to me. And, of course. Uh, and on that happy note, how do people reach you? Yeah. So I am on LinkedIn. Emily Ragland um, is probably the best way for me, but I'm also on Instagram. Um, it's M Ragland, E-M, and then R-A-G-L-A-N-D. Um, there's two different ones, but one of them's private. So one of them's like my private personal one. And then there's the public one. Um, and yeah, if anyone wants to share a story or discuss or they want, I offer professional development and training and facilitation around building frameworks in your work environment, especially that are trauma-informed. If you're serving people who need support and need advocacy, uh, I think we have an obligation to be trauma informed at the very least, because you can do a lot of harm if you don't educate yourself. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Um, good. Well, we will have links to those in the show notes. All right. Awesome. For, for everybody to check out. And, um, and on that, we'll wrap up. Thank you very much for good. coming around. And <laughs> thanks audience out there for coming around and listening to us gabber on at a mad rate about all of this. And uh, I hope we will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.